Hello, and welcome to Season 4 of the E3 Podcast, Energy and Efficiency with Emily. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This season, we're going to talk about building science, female entrepreneurship, and the built environment. Prepare to get nerdy. So I'm excited to have uh, Caroline on the podcast. I had the opportunity to be on with her on a previous podcast, and I was just so enamored by what she's doing. Incredibly, incredibly important, healthy home expert. So Carolyn, first tell us who you are, what you're up to, um, and then we'll get into talking some building science. Oh, that's so cool. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome. And um, I am Caroline Blazowski. I'm America's healthy home expert. That name was given to me over the years. So it's something that somebody else gave to me, one of the corporations that I worked with, and then it sort of stuck. But I've been a national home expert for over 25 years. I've done 30,000 home investigations in my career. So I've been around a long time. I'm aging myself. Emily's young. I'm not young. <laughs> I don't know about that. Did you see I'm young at hair? heart, though. I'm young at heart, definitely. And um, so, yeah, I think it's great to come on and talk a little bit about environments. And um, I kind of want to get Emily's take on houses and situations. And is it an architecture issue? Do we have poor architecture or do we have poor surroundings, poor environment? Do we build on poor lots? Is it a combination? Do we do this to ourselves? All these good questions. I got to throw in my keyword there. It depends. And I think yes to all of the above. So it's crazy. But um, hi. So yes, I'm here with her. Yeah. Well, this is exciting. Um, I I love talking about this stuff. Obviously, our indoor environments have become like something that people have focused more on in the last two years. But obviously, you and I have been doing this a lot longer. This is not a new issue. Green building, environmental building, indoor air quality, mold. I mean, everybody knows that mold's been a problem forever. So, um, yeah. And we're young, like both of us, her and I, there were people before us that were tackling these issues. I mean, 30 years before me, you know, I'm 50 this year. So I learned, there were only like two people I could learn from back in the day. So, you know, it's very limited. Now there's a whole bunch of people you can learn from and organizations and groups. But back then there was no indoor air quality association. Like those things didn't exist. Right. So what's the biggest thing that you find in people's houses or what, what's the biggest, uh, either building or homeowner mistake that you think leads to people calling you most most frequently? It is so varied. Like I, every day it's something different. And I think that's what makes it so fascinating. So like this past week, let's just take like what I was dealing with. I was dealing with bacteria and E. coli contamination in water, which like, you know, that's sort of blah, but it happens every day. People forget about it. And we've had to install UV light systems on people's, you know, incoming water from wells. Then I had a client in Los Angeles, which I want to talk to you about because I think this is kind of fascinating, but they have a house that's built up in the hills, you know, so it's sort of subgrade, but then exposed. And so in California, code is to ventilate crawl spaces in basements. So they have all these little, imagine a, you know, basement and then in the walls in the cement, there's these square holes that sort of go along the basement wall, right? For ventilation. Right. And so my client was having a huge problem where she was experiencing high relative humidity with this crawl space, these openings. And no matter what we did, right, she would get a mold growth. She had to have remediation done. She bought this house and she came to me and she's like, look, you know, this is the problem. I'm like, well, we're going to have to put a dehumidifier down there and close up these holes. So the HVAC contractor called me and he said, well, it's not code. 
you know, if we do this and I'm like, well, we might have to put some louvers on and get a little creative because at the time of year, she can't have the opening. So it depended on the climate, right? The climate, these little microclimates are changing throughout the country. And we can go into that because it's so crazy. But, you know, an area like Southern California is not consistently not humid anymore. They are actually getting quite a bit of humidity. And it's the same with San Francisco. San Francisco used to be a climate where you didn't need air conditioning or HVAC. Now you do. So what do we do when code is sort of dictating a climate, something that had to do with climate that was relevant to that time period, maybe 15 years ago, no longer relevant. It puts me in a weird situation. So I kind of wanted to get your input on something like that. Yeah, I think um, this is the part that's going to become really important for professionals in the field to understand. Um, my personal feeling is your uh, foundation needs to be either all outside or all inside. And kind of none of this halfway between with these vented crawl spaces, because um, even uh, Dr. Allison Bales, uh, who just wrote a book, if you guys haven't checked it out, Does Your House Need to Breathe, should be out in the next two weeks. But um, he presented with me uh, at a conference maybe two or three weeks ago, and he's posting and showing pictures of the slides. And he said, I don't know if anybody's ever seen a well-done vented crawl space. Like, I don't even know if it's possible. And like, he's got years of experience testing, checking these things out and everything. Like, it, it never works, but it also makes me worry about, you know, there are things that we did here in the Northeast that at the time were code, right? We had all these vapor barriers on the warm side of the house. Well, now as those climate zones are moving up, we're seeing extremely more um, humid, hot and humid days as our shoulder seasons and even into our summers are happening. And now all of a sudden, we have air conditioning in the Northeast. I mean, it was kind of a joke a couple of years ago that like well, we have air conditioning. You are. Maine, yeah. We like we never thought about air conditioning. Right. We didn't Maine. have air conditioning in Maine. Well, now it's getting hot and humid. So people are putting air conditioning into these structures that weren't planned for that. And it's like, oh my goodness, what, what kind of um, problems are we creating in structures that Maybe we're resilient for a few years, but now code is sort of dictating. You know, I even had a contractor today ask me, hey, can you make sure that you bring the vapor barrier detail when you come to the job site? And we poured a slab like a couple weeks ago. And I'm thinking vapor barrier detail. What is he talking about? I was like, the slab's already in. I was like, are you talking about our air barrier detail? Like how you need to connect all of your air barriers? And he's like, yeah, you know, the vapor barrier detail on the wall. And I was like, please stop saying that. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is not what we were talking about. And I was like, okay, well, when I come on Monday, we're going to have a conversation about this because, you know, like we... This house definitely has heat pumps and air conditioning in it. We need to make sure, I need to make sure you're not going to put poly on all of my walls. Please, please tell me you're not going to do this. <laughs> and so. it, But explain, I'm um, like, explain too, like, so when you do that, wh what kind of problem would that create for you? So essentially the problem that we create is always in the past, the uh, vapor barrier was on the warm side and we were kind of addressing the vapor because uh, it was cold outside and warm inside. Well, now we're having the opposite in the summertime. It's warm outside with vapor uh, trying to go the opposite direction and we're cooling the inside of our structure. So now that vapor barrier, that plastic vapor barrier is keeping moisture from going in the direction that it wants to go. And then it's going to condense in your wall system. And unfortunately, and you can probably speak on this more um, than I can is till you see the mold, you already have a problem. 
Like till you mm-hmm. see it in your sheetrock. I mean, it's already fully saturated, growing mold, doing all kinds of other things. And so unfortunately, that's our last warning sign before it's like, <laughs> oh crap. You know? Yeah, like when you see it, like if somebody comes in and they test your home and you they start to see like we see little microcosms of mold spores floating around and we say, Hey, I think you're starting to get a problem, that's when you need to heat it. Because what what Emily's saying is that when you start to see this colonization of this thick green, black, white, gray stuff growing on your walls, you're done. Like that has been you have proliferated like colonies and colonies and families of like all kinds of stuff. So like, if you see one spore, there's like millions in there, but if you see like a whole bunch like that, you're in trouble. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's like, uh, Oh, till it's visible to us. It's already gone through all these other cycles of, you know, and then where did that, where did that moisture come from? Was it a leak? Was it, is it now pushing through the walls in the opposite direction as you expose the vapor barriers now on the wrong side of the wall for, as it keeps getting warmer, is it going to get closer to 50% of the time, right? This is, you know, can it dry? What are our wall structures built out of? And I think that's my biggest challenge with building materials now is that we have so many building materials available to us. But I don't know that if everybody in our industry understands what we're expecting our materials to do, right? Somebody described OSB as vertical mulch. Like in the right situation, it could totally be that vertical mulch, which is crazy. I I like that you're bringing this up because like, so I have a lot of clients and obviously they have different sensitivities, allergies, you know just reasons they don't want to use certain building products, whether it's environmental impacts or whatnot. And so being and seeing the home improvement industry now for at least the last two years where I had like a real deep dive into home improvement, because I'd always been on the environmental side, my eyes have been opened in so many ways. And more so it's that people say, well, we've used this product for 25 years, so therefore it should be okay. Or we use this for 15 years, it should be okay. And, And what I try to explain is that Anyone can be sensitive to any kind of product that's out there. So 80% of the populace might not be allergic to a cat, but 20% are, and that person could have a really bad reaction. And so just because you've used the product for 25 years doesn't mean that it's healthy for someone else. And so what keeps me, I think, in business and working with all types of different clients is that these things keep presenting themselves. Like someone will say, well, OSB, you know, I haven't had it delaminate. I've never had a problem with it. But I see across the board with my clients that clients who use OSB on a continual basis start to have some similar health effects. And seeing 30,000 houses, I think I can make that claim that there is some additive that is used in oriented strand board, which is different than plywood. And I can put these clients in plywood buildings and they don't have the same issue. Can I exactly prove what it is from a VOC standpoint? Not so much, but we know that there's something that's different. And I don't know if that's the moisture that it isn't able to permeate moisture as well. People say now, oh, well, the plywood's got just as much glue and, you know, it should be doing the same thing that OSB does. But I see distinct differences and I have clients who respond and smell and treat OSB very differently than plywood. So. I think that's a real, that's a real thing. I mean, I have a project recently and, you know, we called for 
for plywood on the outside is a double stud wall. We know the plywood's going to get wet. Um, we have a rain screen to promote drying, right? But we wanted something that was a little bit more durable that we knew could withstand getting a little bit wet, you know, in February potentially, right? Because our double stud wall is drying to both directions. We're doing everything that we can to prevent drying. We're not stopping the moisture flow in either direction. Okay. But they ordered it and uh, the lumber yard didn't have whatever I put on my plan. So they just sent zip board and they were like, uh-uh. this is a better product. So we sent this to you because we think you're building this high quality house. So you're going to, you need, you know, this is a higher no. quality material. And um, my client happens to be also sort of in the industry, but on the commercial end and can, can read and understand my drawings and said, Hey, this isn't what the drawing said. Did you get her approval on this material swap? So the contractor calls me up and he's like, Hey, can we use this? And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> like, I don't think that you want to get a call back on this. Would it be okay? Maybe. Can I guarantee it's going to be okay? Absolutely not. And like, we just, as a general rule of thumb, don't use OSB type products when we do double stud walls, because we worry a little bit about its longevity of getting wet. Can it get wet over and over again and dry out and still mm-hmm. have its material integrity? And the answer is generally no, right? No, I, I'll go on the record and I will say no. Yeah. And then what you get is this, if you've ever walked into homes that use OSB board and for people like I know people on your show probably know, but if like people who see me on the show, OSB is that what I call piece together, right? So you look at it and it looks like glued together pieces of wood, right? Instead of being a solid sheet. Well, what happens is when this sort of gets moist and we see this a lot in the New Jersey, New York, Connecticut area, that it gets a smell. It definitively has a smell. When I walk into an OSB house, I can smell it right away. There could be two sheets of it in there and I, my nose picks it up. And I guess from working with it so long, I can differentiate. And to me, a house should smell like nothing. It should smell like nil. Like unless you're cooking chocolate chip cookies, that's what you should smell. But in general, a healthy home will have what I call zero odor. You shouldn't pick up on anything, you know, in your olfactory fatigue that we all have. We we always can't smell too much anyway, but a house should really be what I call nose neutral. Mm -hmm. And so OSB doesn't do this. When you walk into an OSB house and over the last say 15 years, I've seen this, that people call up and they say, you know, my house has a smell. It's a sweet smell. I can't place it. I had a leak. I smell it more profoundly. And it turns out that it's always the OSB. And I'm like, look, there's nothing you can do about it. This is how your house is going to smell now. And people get sensitized to it and they don't like it. So I find it interesting and um, I'm not a big fan. And, you know, people say to me, oh no, it's better. It holds up better, blah, blah, blah. And um, I just don't recommend it. And I don't, I'm not a big fan. I'm not a big fan either. Yeah, I love you. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I think that our, our clients are moving towards this and because I talk about it, right. And I, you know, I, I totally agree with everything that you're saying is, you know, we have clients who are now experiencing more sensitivities. And I think if you think about your building products, the way you think about how you should shop in the grocery store, which is you should only buy the things that are like on the outside aisles, right? Because they have the mm-hmm. fewest ingredients in them. The fewer ingredients your building materials have, the less things you're going to potentially have a reaction to, right? So like yes. our preference in a double stud wall would be for you to use board sheathing. This is the Northeast. We make boards, we mill wood, like we put yes. up board sheathing. It can have... um you know, it's, it's ability to resist wetting is great. Um, and we had a client who had multiple chemical sensitivities, so we couldn't use anything that had glue in it. We didn't use any mm-hmm. plywood. We didn't use any OSB. We didn't use any of this. And it's funny that you say the house shouldn't smell like anything. Cause this house actually did smell like pine. Like there's so much of this house well, was just pine. <laughs> and 
and so and so like so that's a perfect example right so like pine come you know you have a pining which is a voc and so right. people go well i'm just going to build my house with wood well wood has lots of volatile organic compounds including formaldehyde so when you do right. a new build if you're chemically sensitive, you're going to have lots of formaldehyde. You're going to have lots of VOCs. And that's why we like, I tend to recommend people use like a maple or an oak or, or, or a denser wood that doesn't, isn't less, less aromatic. Right. Right. Um, even when, you know, you're doing projects around the house, like people use cedar and stuff. And I'm like, look, if you have allergies, if you have sensitivity, stay away from those types of things. Cause you will get a pining, which is a VOC. So, yeah. Yeah. It was one of the same things as we said to her. I was like, look, you can't come to the job site during construction. Like, this is just not going to be a good time for you to be here. We're going to mm -hmm. need to do a lot of ventilation, some off-gassing, et cetera, in this. It has formaldehyde and other things in it. Um, you know, like there, there could potentially be a period of time where, you know, acclimating to this house and, and everything. Because, yeah, and that was like just us trying to get rid of as many chemicals as we can. But naturally occurring things have stuff in them, too right and people yep. don't you know they so we actually just sent her a box of what i called trash i think this is funny like we just sent her a box of trash and we're just like see if any of these building materials give you a reaction because like how do you test this right? that's what you do that's what but that's like even with my clients i say listen get something like if you're going to get a cabinet you're going to get any any product bring it in your house and stick it there for a while and see how you do with it and like and granted, when you cut things, like, so if you're cutting wood or cutting a two by four or whatever, you're going to get those aromatic byproducts that come off of fresh cut wood, right? So that's why you kind of have to let it settle out a little. But typically, like, when we're doing projects, I always recommend my clients, like, just stay away from the woods that are, like, Doug fir I like. I like, you know, obviously oaks and maples and things like that. But cedar is, like, a no-no. People like to go nuts with cedar closets. And I'm like, look, if you have allergies, just stay away from cedar. Like, right? Not, <laughs> just don't bring it in your house. Like, if it smells, try to avoid it. <laughs> yeah. But no, but I'm serious about houses. I, I have listened to my clients over the years and they are so smart and they've educated themselves about, you know, what's wrong. So by the time they come to me, my job is to listen and absorb that information because they know better than you do. Like, I think the minute you think your client doesn't, and I'm not talking about like design and like things that you would have experience with, but what they want or how they feel or their, or their reactions to things, they know better than you do. And you need to absorb that and then create a solution for them. So I get frustrated when I see contractors just, you know, they'll call me and say, this contractor was here and he just, you know, he said, I'll be fine with this. And he wants to use it. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm like, and then I have to get on the phone with the contractor because I don't care. Right. I'm like, you want to yell at me? Yell at me. I'm like, I love to like, be I the just, bad guy. I'm like, I, I totally this. do not mind walking on the job site and being the bad guy and just being like, absolutely not. Being the B-I-T-C-H. Right? <laughs> I know, but that's that's the, right, this, this is the the women in the industry uh, debate, right? Is like when we put our foot down and we say, no, like, does is it the same issue for men when they show up on a no. job site? And they say, look, we can't use this product. Is it just universally, like, accepted at that point? Like, <laughs> no, and that's why I'm on this. Because, like, these are two women-owned businesses, WBEs, and, like, I think now I, I'm recognizing the importance of, I didn't, when I first started, I kind of thought there was, I guess I had this rose colored glasses on and I thought there was such equality in like, if you wanted to start a business and you're a woman, there was no big deal. Like I didn't realize how important it is to support other women and to have women owned businesses until like much later in life, which is now, you know what I mean? Like the last few years I started to realize there are so many women, um, 
who don't have businesses, the percentage of women-owned businesses is very small in comparison to a male-owned business. And I, I just, I was blown away by those numbers to realize like how privileged we are to, to do what we do and to represent other women. And you want to encourage it as much as you can, because we're very, we're a minority, you and I, not, it's not that common. Yeah. And I like to, that's part of the reason why I still do the podcast and, and everything is, um, you know, somebody said this to me a while ago and it just never really occurred to me. I think, you know, the same with you when I was young, I was just, I didn't really think of anything. Um, I grew up in a farming family. I don't know that a lot of farming families or maybe it was just how I was raised. It didn't matter. Everybody worked. Everybody had jobs. It didn't matter if you were, you know, kind of a a boy or a girl didn't, didn't matter. Everybody just did things. And so I think I probably had rose colored glasses too, because I was just like, there isn't any barrier for me to do. Right. I felt like that too. Like, I'm like, what, what do you mean? We can't do this. No. But then I talked Mm -hmm. to more people and you hear that like, oh, I didn't know that was something that I could do until I saw somebody else like me doing these things. And so that was when I thought it became really important for me to both um, show what I'm doing, but also to encourage other women and highlight other women or other minorities who are doing things so that, especially in the construction industry, I mean, we're so, so far understaffed in the construction industry. We need we need women to join the construction industry. We need everybody to join who, who can. And so to make it feel like an accepting and open environment for people to do that and to have, I wish, you know, when I started out on my own, I don't know, 13 or so 14 years ago, I wish I would have had a mentor that I could have said like, Oh yeah, like this is the person who's doing really cool things. And I can't, underscore the value of connections and meeting other people and just, you know, being out there and kind of sharing. Um, and that's, that's just something I thought was important and I wanted to start doing because, um, you're right. There aren't that many of us. (laughs) No. And I realized it more when I got into, um, I had won an award in New Jersey for being a top entrepreneur in the state. And when I went to accept the award, I started to look at the people and they call it an entrepreneur and an intrapreneur, right? So entrepreneurs are more like women who have succeeded in like a business, right? Meaning they don't own the business and they're not like a powerhouse owner, but they are a powerhouse within like a corporation. And so I started to see like out of the list of 25, there were very few women entrepreneurs, meaning that you started a business, you started a concept, you started branding. It was more, they had made it within, within a company. And so then I started to realize how really different we were and that there should be more of that. And women, we see things in a totally different perspective. And I think over the last two years, being kind of thrown into the home improvement industry and just seeing what it's about, it, it's very different, the perspective we come from. And not saying better, worse, or the same, it's just different and it needs to be incorporated. I mean, in homes, women are making 65 to 75% of the decisions about whether they're doing their architecture, their building, what they're selecting, their design. And somehow when you look out in the industry, there's so many males representing the home improvement. I mean, yeah, every once in a while, you'll see a couple like HGTV people building, but overall, if you look at spokespeople, if you look at product development, if you look at the big corporate makers out there that are making products, it's very few women that are being represented. And how can we be making all those decisions and be such an influence in the industry and not be represented blows my mind. Right. But that's it, happening. It is. <laughs> I know. Day. And I, like, maybe it's not until you actually focus on it that you realize how small of a percentage that is. I mean, I, I, 
was at the International Builders Show, right? They've been doing this, National Home Building Association's been doing this for I don't even know how many years. And I was at the International Builders Show and there was another um, really awesome uh, uh, woman that came up to me. I was in the build zone and I was, I don't even remember what I was talking about. And she was like, I just wanted to thank you for being here and representing women in the industry because there aren't that many on the stage. And I was like, Oh yeah. Like I just take it for granted, especially because I work with some really cool men. So also not to undervalue. Yeah. uh, We're not. No, 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 no. no. Really cool people out there. But like, it was just one of those moments where he's like, you get so involved in what you're doing. You sort of forget. And you're like, yeah, you know what? Absolutely. Like I am glad to be here and be representing and be on the stage. I'm be encouraging other women to join the industry because we need you. And that's how, and that's how I came across you and saw you, right. was because I was introduced to you being a speaker and you yep. being out there. And that impressed me. I was like, wow. I'm like, this is amazing that she's doing this because it, it, it like, I guess when you're looking back at it, like I'm looking at the planet from a far direction, it's right. you're few and far between. Right. You know, so you're yeah. such a gift. Oh, so See? are you. We're gifts. <laughs> we are. We are. And we're both out there every day, slogging through both our everyday business and also educating people. And yeah, it's hard. People. It's much harder when you have a business to run to. You know, because you have my clients will always come first. I mean, there's no question that they are my I mean, one, they're my bread and butter. Right. I mean, they pay. That's what actually makes money. We don't make money doing this in case anybody (laughs) wanted to know. (laughs) But no, I mean, and and I enjoy it. Like, so I don't. How about you? I mean, like, I truly love my clients. Like, I mean, I think I can think of one client and I feel bad even saying that it wasn't that she was a bad person. I think she just had some mental health issues, but one client in 25 years that was really just wacky. Right. But the rest of my clients, I love, love, love them. And I love helping and seeing them thrive and their kids thrive. And so yeah, it just, I, it's such a fulfilling feeling. And I wonder, right. I need to think about this and talk to some other people, but you know, as women, maybe we get more involved. I love my clients too. I have some clients where I was like, will you please adopt me? Like, I just want to be one of your kids. Like, I love you. I'll still stop by their house and have coffee with them years later after their houses are done. I mean, they're the people who are out there doing advertisement for me. And they're like, oh, you should call Emily. You want to come to our house? Absolutely. Come on in. Like, this is what we did. This is, you know, and, and I love that, but like, I get involved in their lives and I love that. And you're right. I don't, you know, out of the years that I've been practicing, I've maybe had one client who, who wasn't somebody that I would call again after, you know, after the project, it's just, um, you know, and I don't know if it's different for us just being involved at one in residential, right? So it's extremely personal to the people that we work with, right? Yes. This is their house. This is their home, their sanctuary, their nest. Or if it's also in combination with that being women that we understand that on a different level, um, than, than other just kind of ways that things are constructed. I don't know, but yeah, I mean, I just have a lot of great clients. I love my clients for a couple of years. I did large scale energy engineering projects, um, for affordable housing. And it was, it, it felt good because you knew you were making an impact, but I missed the interaction with the clients, the design part of it, the like everyday piece. And so personally for me, I am just not a person that likes to do spreadsheets all day long. That's just not my, it's just not my thing. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, so my clients are definitely the people who, you know, enrich and make it feel important, the stuff that we're doing. So, um, I was going to say when I got into this too, like 
people told me, cause I wanted to do residential only. I was like, I just like houses. I like, I think it was the people. I like feeling like this is where we all live. And people were like, you're never going to make any money. If you go in residential, you have to do commercial. Like, you know, and I was like, no, I'm like, not <laughs> like, I'm sorry. I'll be poor then. <laughs> I was like, and, that is um, a lie that people tell you. Like, right? it is crazy know. how, like, the housing industry, especially in single family residential, is so huge. That is like a crazy, crazy, don't believe them when they tell you that. But I think back then, right, like nobody was testing their environments in residential, right? So the thought True. that I was going to go in and change how people looked at homes. And I made this goal, like it was stupid. I said, I worked on, I was testing mold. I can't remember how it was, but I said, I'm going to change the way Americans view their home. Like I want to change the way that Americans live in their home and the way they feel in their home. And it was just something I put out there into the universe and it happened like strange, but nobody, I didn't expect that. Like I, like I said, I went into an industry where people were like, forget it. No one's going to test their home. No one's going to care about mold. And when I started telling people mold was bad, this was, you know, 25 years ago, people looked at me like I had 10 heads. I, I grew a very tough skin because I was told, no, 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 you're wrong. Mold doesn't make people sick. This is, this is like a bunch of hogwash. You know, it's this hokey, blah, blah, blah. And now look at it. Like doctors are testing for mycotoxins. They're testing patients for mold exposure. Like, you know, when people come to me and they're like, oh, mold's bad. I'm like, mm-hmm. Like I was a pioneer in starting that 25 years ago. Nobody was doing it back then. There were like five of us. Right. Literally five. Right. It's so crazy how long it takes something to catch on when you're just like, why do people, well, like, why are we not associating this with that? Like, why, why are we not making this connection between these two things? And, you know, when I said it is a lie that you can't make money in residential, but I think that you you have to think about it in different ways too, right? Like maybe you couldn't just do, I don't know. I don't even know if that's true, but like you took this really specific thing and you just kept talking about it until people finally caught on. Like they got it. They like It was hard though. Like I want people it was to a understand me, when you believe in something, you have to stick to your guns. And I think I'm on this like and if, if your audience thinks I'm being preachy, but I think I turned 50, like, like the last few weeks I turned 50 and there was like this epiphany that happened in my brain. And I'm like, wait, you have experience. You have this knowledge that, you know, for 25 years you've done something and now you see where we've come. And so when you have a goal and you know something, you have to stick to your guns. Like you, like people are going to come at you with bats and swat you away and make you feel like you're this big and say, you don't know what you're talking about. And it's really hard to keep getting up there and saying, no, mold makes you sick. Like, this is why here it is. Like we're showing people like, and, and sometimes you don't have the science. Like I had to go in and keep testing homes and testing homes and testing homes and showing the data and showing somebody sick and showing the high mycotoxin or showing the high spore count and comparing that and, and having that history to make it, to make it where we are today. Does that make sense? Like you yeah. couldn't, there was no data to back it up. I had a, a hunch, I had an idea, I saw something and then I had to work to prove it. So what I'm saying is that when you have these ideas, like don't expect that people are just gonna like fall over and be like, yeah, oh my God, you're totally right. That's such a great idea. <laughs> it's not, Yeah. it's not reality. Like it's not. It takes a long time to educate. And I agree. You just have to keep kind of saying that this is, you know, this is what you do and what, you know, how you're, you're structuring it. People often ask that, you know, like, how do you convince your clients to build better houses? And I was like, 
first of all, most of my clients, like your clients, already know what I stand for till they get to me, right? Because I've been talking about it for a long time. But you got to do things like this, you know, blogs, podcasts. Uh, we talked a little bit before we got on TikTok. Oh, Lord, help us. I'm too old for TikTok, too. But oh, my God. Uh, did like, you tell that story? You need to tell that story. She like did a TikTok video. I'm like impressed because like I like- would never do it. <laughs> It like nearly <laughs> killed me now to do like a 30 second TikTok video. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, no, I just, I turned 40 this year. And so uh, I I also feel like I, I've just kind of aged past some of this new technology, but um, we, I, uh, most of you are familiar with the Pretty Good House book. They wanted us to do some promo on that because new generations are absorbing their information in different ways. And I totally agree with that. Mm-hmm. It's part of why I started my podcast. When I first started out, I wrote blogs, but then we realized that people don't read. So then I was like, well, I also <laughs> like to talk a lot. So, all right, so I'll do, I'll do a podcast, right? But now we're starting to see oversaturation in the market, like we talked about on podcasts, right. because one, people aren't traveling as much. And I don't know about anybody else who listens, but I can't work at my desk and listen to a podcast. I'm just incapable of doing it. And so if I'm not spending time in my car, I'm not, I'm, I don't have as much time to consume podcasts as I had before. Um, and maybe I should listen to a podcast while I'm out walking my dog or something like that. But you know, there's just so yeah, but much. Isn't it true that we're like, and I notice this like younger generations than us, they're saying they're like, how do we balance? They're being thrown so much like technology, workout, make sure your house is good. Um, what else? Make sure you're doing well on the job. Like they are so inundated with things that like we, like, you know, I had less than you and then you had a little more than me, but now they are so saturated and they're having like these breakdowns because they don't know how to assimilate all these things they have to do and all this knowledge they have to gather. I mean, it's a lot on them. And I really, I feel because life was much simpler when I grew up, you know, we didn't have those types of, um, constantly stuff being thrown at us and responsibilities as much. So, well, and I totally agree. I think one, we're overstimulated and two, a lot of the stuff that we have has kept us from being bored, but when we're bored is when creativity actually happens. So I think we have to remind ourselves to like, decompress, get off of there. Like, yes, it would be great if I took a walk and listened to a podcast while I was taking a walk, but then I'm not outside in nature, enjoying just time away from noise in my ears, visual stimulation to my eyes, like talking every day, all this stuff. Right. So, um, I was watching something the other day, of course, right. I was watching it because uh, this is how we <laughs> take in our news as, and they were like, this is just a reminder to everybody that it's okay to just do nothing sometimes. And it's like, oh yeah. Like a reminder that one of my favorite places is a cabin that my parents own that has zero cell reception and no internet. So when we go there, we just toss our phones on the table because they don't work for anything other than capturing photos of the kids doing ridiculous things on their bikes in the yard. Right? Like, we literally spend our time there as a family generally uh, completely decompressed from all technology because it just doesn't work, right? Like, Where is that? Is that in Maine? I need to go there. It's, <laughs> it's not in Maine, but there are plenty of places in Maine where the cell reception also is terrible. <laughs> so come on up. Um, Maine is only really populated in the bottom third of the state. So anywhere in the upper two thirds probably won't have much reception. <laughs> We used to have, when I grew up, um, a place in Castine, Maine, believe it or not. So oh, yeah. we had, like a little place. And I used to spend quite a bit of time. And I remember um, in high school, I used to have to go to these leadership conferences. They had like, you know, it was like student council leadership and they would send us to Maine all the time. And I like loved it. Oh my God. It was like my favorite place. And it was so pristine and the water was amazing. 
Every time we uh, travel away from here, and I've been doing a lot of traveling this year, I always come back to Maine and it's kind of like, oh, yeah, this is why we live here. Like, it's just so so refreshing. I mean, we, uh, I had to go when I was working for on the energy engineering projects, I had to go to Los Angeles um, for a project. We were working with the Los Angeles Housing Authority on a project out there. And like, we went to the Getty Center and you couldn't see anything from the Getty Center because the smog was so bad. And I thought, what am I breathing? Ooh. Oh my goodness. Like I was like, come back to Maine and it's like clear blue skies <sighs> and all this stuff. And I was like, okay, yeah, I know why I live here now. Like I know. And that's why, why like those of you who can't see Emily, she has like beautiful skin. So I, we're going to say that that's because she lives in Maine and her skin breathes and it's like totally not toxic and it's just beautiful and glowy. So I think that's something to do with it. Now, if you come to New York and New Jersey, like me and live in a cesspool, then you'll have lots of wrinkles and <laughs> have dirty complexion. Yeah, uh, th- this goes back to another thing that we talked about on indoor air quality too, though, is, as um, you know, we were talking about Allison. So we're going to talk about Allison for another second here where um, his houses need to breathe thing. And he was doing a presentation and, you know, we're always talking about like houses don't need to breathe. Houses need to dry, but people need to breathe. And then they're like, <laughs> oh, but we have all these people who want to build leaky houses because they're like, the house needs to be leaky so like people can get fresh air. Um, no. Have you ever thought about where the air actually is coming from if you have a leaky house? Like how basement. many of you have been Nasty. in your attic or your <laughs> basement? Like my attic is disgusting. Like 1970s. Yes. Uh, insulation. Dust, like dirt. insulation. I'm sure mouse droppings, right? Let's all be realistic. Yep. Whatever you've had your basement, you go down in your basement and you're like paint cans and whatever else you have stored down there. Like that is the fresh air that you're getting. And he said, let's just be real here. It's not fresh air. It's just air or outside air. Right. So let's say that you have your windows open. Right. That's still just outside air. It may not be very fresh. Like you just talked about the cesspool that is down there. Like you open your windows. Yeah, New York. What are you actually getting in your window? You know, that's it. Like big pharma. I mean, what do we have in New York and New Jersey? Like big pharma corporations. Like you know, it's it's how fresh is the air outside? But that's like a good point. And I and I thought like when I came on the show today, I always like to think about like things that I want to hit on. And one of them is that you could build the best house and you can use the best products and do all these things. But if you are in a bad environment, your water's not good. Like we just talked about bacteria, contamination, lead, PFAS, all this stuff we're seeing ending up in the water or your house is built on chloridane, or maybe you had heplichlor or aldrin or any of these pesticides that were used prior to you building a house, or maybe you did a reno on a house. And then you've got all these things that were sort of left over. I've seen clients deal with all of that, or I had a client who had a house that was built on top of don't ask me why. I think it was like a right guard factory or one of them in their house when it would rain, they would get moisture would come up from the ground. It would smell like old spice. So okay. like crazy, like things like, like we think we can control it. Even like when I hear people in the building industry say, okay, well, you know, I'm going to use the best products and I'm going to do this. Well, what about all of those natural things that cause us problems that are in the environment every day? Radon's a perfect example, radiologicals, uranium, like worth it's not just about house and building. And even if you build the best structure, you can still have problems. So water is a perfect example. I so yeah. you touched on a big thing that we've been kind of covering recently, which I think is really missing in the 
uh, high performance home building, right? There are two things I think, well, there are three things that I think are coming up and coming that I'm hoping we're going to spend a lot more time on. One, we totally ignore HVAC, right? Ventilation, HVAC, all that stuff. Two, um, we haven't been talking enough about carbon in our materials, carbon emissions in our materials on day one. But the third one is water, right? You just talked about water. I can't tell you how many of my clients have had a well drilled and it's just like how much pressure is in there in the well, not even testing the well, like connect to it. And there is all kinds of stuff in the well, especially like here in coastal areas where we have high water tables from the sea. We've got brackish water. We've got all kinds mm. of things, you know, and then like you just talked about E. coli, what happens when we have um, high minerals. So we had some uh, of our homeowners had their water tested, right, which is good. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, okay, well, we need a system. What do we use to treat the water? And then it's like, well, we've got this, these systems that we've been using forever to treat the water. Well, like what happens if the treatment to the water is like high sodium and you've got blood pressure issues or That's something it. and you've got to be well, like, well, now we've created a whole nother problem for you that you also need to treat the treated water. Like, that's and it. So, well, that's sort um, of like, isn't it like when you go like in big pharma, it's the same thing, right? You take a drug, you get, so you have high blood pressure and then you take a high blood pressure drug. And now you developed, um, I don't know, a cardiac problem and you have a low heart rate. Now I've got to take something for that. It's the same thing. So I really try to encourage people with water, particularly we want to try to get your water as good as it is naturally. We don't want to have to add supplementation or add these systems because believe me, I've tested homes where the system that was used to treat the water was actually causing contamination. The client had no issue with the water. They just put a system on. So like, I'm going to do RO right now. Right. And they put it on and then they ended up with a benzene problem because the water gaskets were being made in China overseas. Nobody knew where they were coming from and they were not being, you know, they didn't have inert materials in them and they had benzene, which is a carcinogen. And they were, you know, basically eating this every day and drinking it every day. Right. So so, but water is a big issue. We've got a lot of issues with PFAS, a lot of issues with, you know, obviously lead contamination, radon. I mean, I look at all these different things in houses and it, when you shower, think about it, your body has a natural way when you drink water, like 13% of the toxins will go into your body, but your body actually has a way because in nature, if you ate something that was bad, your body could detoxify it and get rid of it. So you wouldn't die, but your skin is your largest bodily organ. It doesn't have that same protection mechanism. So 80% of the water or the things in the water get absorbed right into your bloodstream in 20 seconds or less by showering in it. So the biggest concern becomes where you're bathing and showering. Radon is a perfect example. It follows its way up through the pipe and we end up, I actually test radon in water, not because it's actually in the water, but it uses it as a vehicle to get up. Cause we want to see when you turn on your shower, how much radon exposure are you actually getting out of the shower? Right. And it can be quite a bit. I had a client who was really super sick. She had these weird symptoms and the only thing I could find in the house was that her radon levels like 60 picocuries, which you're supposed to be four or under, right? So 60 is like way out there. And when she turned on the showers and the faucets in the bathroom, that's how it was coming up. And I had so many people tell me, no way, that's not making her sick, blah, blah, blah. It's not, you're not going to do anything. I said, well, I'm going to correct the problem and see what happens. Do you know all her symptoms went away? And radon's supposed to be this odorless, colorless gas that doesn't affect you, or it will give you cancer long-term, but not necessarily giving you any kind of, you know, symptoms you know, while you're around it, but it was, she was causing her all kinds of weird, like lethargy. She felt tired. She had muscle pain, all this strange stuff and went away and we fixed it. Which makes me want to go back to a whole nother other topic, which is our ability to just write off, not feeling well, right. As mm -hmm. both, um, women, cause women are treated differently in the medical industry than men are, but 
as people too, right? Like everybody thinks that radon maybe isn't a problem until you get cancer way down the road. But is that simply because people don't complain enough about things that are like lethargic? It's like, oh no, you just going to exercise more and eat better. Well, you right. know what? That's not everybody's problem. Right? Like, <laughs> I look at it like you should not feel stuffy in your home. You shouldn't feel lethargic all the time. I mean, if you feel like something's off, there's something off. And granted, there's so many things in an environment. It's overwhelming, Emily. Like when right. I, when you see what I see from my perspective, it's like almost like a hopeless situation because we are inundated with all kinds of stuff in our houses. And I'm not talking about just the per, you know, people like I hear a lot of consultants or people like on the, on TV now. And they're like, well, just detoxify your home by removing your toxic chemicals. It's not that simple. Right. People don't, it's not like you can just switch over your cleaners and you're going to be okay. There's so many combinations of things that are environmental, meaning like they're in your environment underneath your home, right? Not part of your home, but something that's going to impact you. Your neighbors, if you have horses next door, if you've got volatile organics, people spraying glyphosate. Like, I mean, I was one of the first people in the country to uncover glyphosate in ductwork. So these filters that we put in and going back to HVAC, there's, I mean, Emily and I could talk forever because it's like, it's like, uh, I mean, I just enjoy being on the show because it's just a conversation between her and I. And it's awesome. <laughs> right. But so think about HVAC and this is what blows my mind. You've got a giant filter in your HVAC that's just collecting all the stuff, right? That you don't want. Like, so let's say cat danders in there and you've got some peanut allergen in there and you've got, oh, some, I don't know, so maybe it got contaminated benzene. Somebody lit up the, opened the car, you know, turned the car on in the garage and all that stuff went up in the filter. And this stuff stays in there and your air is just flowing through it. It's really a bad system. Right. It doesn't really work great. Right. So it's trapping all these things. And what I found was I was the first person that in my knowledge, and this is why I presented it to the indoor air quality association. I found glyphosate in ductwork in a filter in my client's home who had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. There were three people in the home that developed cancer. And he came to me and said, Hey, listen, I think we have a glyphosate issue. And I'm like, no, like, when did you use it? He's like two years ago. I'm like, uh, it's, you know, it doesn't have that long. It breaks down. It has metabolites. I'm like, I don't think that's your issue. Well, he forced me. And sure enough, it was in there at 110, I think it was parts per billion. Wow. And um, it came from the next door neighbor who was spraying incessantly. Like every time there was a weed, the person was out there with like a suit on spraying, you know, for, for weeds. And so that was getting in. And so that's just one aspect. Think about how many homes have neighbors that spray next door to them across the country. And what a big impact that is. So people are like, oh, I think it's my house. It's this. It may have nothing to do with your home. It may be the fact that your neighbors lighten up their property with all kinds of herbicide and you're getting the byproducts of it in your ductwork that's staying in there because there's no way for it to get cleaned out. It just sits in the filter. And then you end up with cancer. And I've seen it. Yeah, I know. That leads me to another one of my totally pet peeves. Like, can we please get over this grass society where we have like this monocrop of grass that like we have to spray all this stuff so it looks like this weird pristine lawn? Like, I get it. You get kids, you get a section of the grass and maybe it's a soccer field long of grass. But like, can we not kill all the pollinators and the bees and everything else that we have? And like, I don't even understand. We've made a like multi-billion dollar industry and just like cutting and maintaining grass and then totally irresponsibly not thinking about the chemicals that we're putting on our grass to make it look that way right we talk about this with products is what's in the product that's getting it to do what i want it to do which seems irrational to what this thing is right like moisture resistant drywall like what's in moisture resistant drywall that makes it not collect mold right <laughs> 
There's something in it. And what does it mean? It means it can stay moisture resistant for about like 12 hours longer than regular drywall. To me, it's like, what, like, what's the point? It's like, but so like this whole grass environment, I talked to an architect. Um, I can't remember if it was last year or the year before. And she lived down in Florida and they were talking about all these chemicals that get sprayed on the lawns in Florida and then just run into the Everglades. Right. And how that's having an effect on the ecological species in the, the fish, Everglades. The aquatic. Yep, yep. Right. Like we, for some reason, have uh, like zero responsibility for the things that we're putting like on the ground in the earth you know the the fumes that we put off when we mow our grass like we're talking about cars and changing to electric cars what about all the people who mow their grass every week during the summertime or water their grass in the, all these drought resistant places like i mean it is mind-boggling like some of these like trying to grow something in an area where it doesn't, it doesn't grow. work right like if you have to yeah. work really hard to get this to work here, it probably doesn't belong. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you know, it's weird. So we were talking about, um, you just mentioned such a good point. And now I, I lost it, but, um, oh, well, keep going. I like, I had some, like a point you said, and then I was like, oh yeah, I have to tell her about this. And then I, I just lost <laughs> it. But go ahead. It'll come back to you. It'll come uh, back to you. Cause we were talking about plants that and 50 brain. Grass. That 50 and... brain. I just turned oh. 50 and now that brain goes. <laughs> Oh, I know. I say that to people. I'm only 40, so oh, you got need to like get to 50. Because uh, I say now, if you don't see me write it down, I won't remember. So make sure you see me write it down or make sure somebody else who's on our project meeting is writing it down as a reminder of what I promised you I would do. <laughs> oh, wait, I remember. Okay. Yeah. So this is my point, Emily. Like these chemicals, and I am not completely anti-herbicide pesticide, okay? I think there are places in agriculture, especially when we have to feed a populace that you can't always probably necessarily rely on organic gardening. There are going to be disease states probably that manifest. So I can give it to agriculture on a commercial level to probably entertain using these types of things. However, do I think, and I wrote a paper on this when I was at USC and presented it, do I think that any residential homeowner has the right without any sort of training to be applying any type of herbicide? No, I don't even think that it should be in the hands of a residential. And when I see people holding a baby, I'm going to hold my little thing that nobody can say they're holding a baby in one hand and they've got the glyphosate in the other and they're outside and they're spraying this in the wind with it being directed right at their face. I don't understand it. I don't think residential use, it should even be permitted. And, and I think we should go to completely organic. That's the alternative option and leave the big stuff, the heavy stuff to commercial application and people who have been trained to use it. End of story. Does that seem unreasonable? I don't think that that seems unreasonable. And then I also would love to see us, you know, not that you want more government or more whatever, but I also would love to see some responsibility to some of our chemical companies, right? Or, or really product companies across the board, right? I'm reading this book on on garbage and the plastic industry and mm. like the zero responsibility for what happens to plastic after it just gets discarded by either homeowners or the companies who create things that have anywhere. Like, it's amazing how much plastic is just like in in stuff for convenience, right? Like anyway, yeah. that is a whole nother topic. Like we could have like three more hours of show on, on it. <laughs> on that but like taking the time and studying like you said when you started out there wasn't a lot of data on 
mold, right? Yep. And unfortunately, a lot of these studies, are, there was a study um, on ionizers, right? But mm. we can talk about ionizers, but there's, a, there's lots of uh, history or whatever, but like even scientific studies that have been done on these chemicals or ionizers or whatever, don't always see the light of day if they're not pro whatever we're trying to push towards the market. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I'd love to see more of a connection between the stuff that does exist because maybe there was data on mold that you just didn't have access to because there were probably scientists out there who were studying the interaction. Oh, sure. Like microbiologists. Exactly. Oh yeah. Didn't have any access to it at the time. And there were no books written on it or, you know, maybe there was one book on, you know, or, or basic microbiology. But that it's funny you say that that's how I gathered my information. So when I was learning back in the day, I went to microbiologists. They became my friends and colleagues and people that I sought information from because there was nothing there that I could gather from like an indoor air quality association or even like a, a, a credentialing association or anything pertaining to mold. So that's who I went to the scientists yeah. that were like working with it. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in, in just like in any industry, there's always like a middle part of the industry that doesn't connect the two pieces together. And I think the biggest thing is there probably are scientists out there testing lots of these things. And that research doesn't get um, packaged in a way that is understandable by the people who are then implementing things that have an impact on the stuff that they studied. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, or they don't, they're like, I guess the, the easiest way to say it is they're studying something, but it's not pertaining to your, to a residential home, right? Exactly. They're just studying the aspergillus penicillium or stachybotrys. And they're like, oh, this is an interesting thing. It produces a mycotoxin, but like how it relates to a house. Oh, I don't care. You know, no. right. <laughs> how it relates to, they don't care about that. Or like they wrote this whole thing and it's so technical because they're just on like some other level of understanding the deep down inside science that even if you have access to it, you may not totally grasp all the things they're trying to tell you in their super technical speak. And it's it's the same in our industry, right? You said this earlier, and I really appreciate it. It's part of why we wrote the book is um, our clients don't necessarily care about all the technical aspects that we understand on how to fix a problem. They just care about the solution to whatever their problem is. And maybe their problem is like they want to be comfortable or they want to be healthy or they want to get rid of this allergen that they have or, you know, they're they're having severe reactions or a bug, right? a bug or something. Yeah, <laughs> they want to get rid of. Bugs. And so like sometimes we talk too technical for them to kind of understand that. And it's like, oh, yeah, remembering who the audience is about this thing is like we're solving the solution. We don't expect you to know all the things that we've spent 25 years researching, learning, understanding, knowing. We just need to listen to you to hear what your problem is so that we can come up with a creative solution to it. So. Yeah. But I think, too, like this is the problem I find. And you tell me if this is true. So like when you're dealing with a client. So it's either you're talking too much and they glaze over. And it's funny because like, I know when my clients, I kind of let my clients gauge it when they've had enough because they'll say, okay, well, I have to go now. And that's like a good sign when your client wants to go. That means they've absorbed way too much of what you had to say. They're not in saturated. a bad way. <laughs> right. But it's good because like, otherwise they'll just keep asking questions and you want them to be saturated. You want your client to actually hang up and be like, okay, I'm done. Like I've learned enough. Like I've got to go. And, and I'm not saying they don't come back to you. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that they've reached their saturation point and they're telling you that, you know, right. they've had it. But I also find then there's other clients who want to know as much as we know, like, 
and they want to know like everything, you know, and then it's like almost like you can't accomplish it because it's like, how can you put 25 years into explaining it to them? You can't, you know, like, cause every scenario is different, you know, like at doing a house, like, well, why did you use this product here and this product here? Well, like, uh, you know, there's 50 million reasons why I did that, but I can't really explain it to you all in a session. Right. Do you have clients like that want to know exactly why you built and how you did it and why? I have some clients who want to get deep down in the science, in the weeds, and I'm certainly <laughs> willing to do that to the, you know, with them. And I'll say like, look, I'm going to send you on a research that like, I can't explain all these things to you, but I can send you data and articles and resources and places where you can take an even deeper dive into this. Like, um, and then I have other clients who, who, who don't care. They're like, I, <laughs> yeah, I want fine what you are offering. I want to be comfortable. I want to be healthy. I want to be able to leave my home in the middle of Maine winter and go away for a month and not worry about my pipes freezing. You know, I want to, you know, feel like I have a healthy indoor air, whatever. And I want to run my ideas by you. And so we have clients definitely on both ends of the spectrum. And I watch for that too. I'm like, I will tell you as much as you want. So if I am not getting detailed enough, just tell me what you want to know. Because I'm probably going to start up here because yep. most people don't want to be like way in down the weeds. in the weeds. <laughs> like most of them don't. And then every once in a while, I have a client that does. And they are like, they've read everything. They've listened yes, to every podcast. Yes. They've gone to resources that I've gone to. Sometimes they turn me on to cool articles that's one of the things I love about teaching is my students generally will like dig up something cool. Like every semester they will come up with this like cool, crazy idea. They're like, I got to learn more about that. Like, this is cool. That Cause is there's cool. so That's much cool. more information out there than I'm ever going to have ex access to, you know, and people are like, Oh, you're the expert. I was like, no, I am a lifetime learner. And yes. like things I did yes. 10 years ago, I probably wouldn't do now because I've <laughs> learned, you know, and not necessarily that any of them were, we're bad or whatever, but like we, you know, we didn't know 10 years ago how much spray foam would potentially have an impact on it. Right. And it's like this cool new product, or maybe we did and we just sort of ignored it. But like 10 years ago, we used a lot more foam in our buildings and concrete because we didn't realize how much, um, you know, carbon emissions were upfront in some of these products. Now we're just like, can you do it that way? Sure. Should you do it that way? Probably not. Will it have an impact on your health? Could, like, <laughs> depends on the client. And so, um, you know, so I don't really say that, like, things I did 10 years ago, I wouldn't do now. But, like, I had this one um, builder who worked with me, and it was during the lean years in, the, like, 2008, 2009. We were doing a lot more energy consulting because there was money coming into the state for people to do improvements on their houses. And he was like, when I first started building, people told you to drill like quarter inch holes in the top plate, right? So that the wall mm. system would breathe. And he's like, if I knew what you've taught me now doing this, I never would have done that 25 years ago. Like, is it bad? Maybe not necessarily. Is it costing that homeowner money? Absolutely. <laughs> like It's so, I mean, I think the building industry is so hard because I think there's always a plus and a negative to everything you do. Right. Like, so you're kind of damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Like, right. so if you use a new product, you know, there's going to be a consequence to it. There's no question. It's like, right. that's what I've seen over the years. Cause like, I'm kind of coming up behind you. Right. So, cause I get like, I built my house and now I've got moisture all over my duck vents and my house is lead and it's supposed to be green, but it's totally toxic. Come help me. 
You know, so I see that coming behind, but like in order to push the envelope further, you kind of have to do these things. The problem is that we've become too, I I liked how you said like using some, I like to go back to the old simple ways of building. I mean, I don't like all these toxic products we're using and I'm not afraid to say it. I mean, people chop my head off and be like, what do you mean? You don't want to use zip system. And what do you mean? You don't want to use like spray foam. And I'm really a traditionalist when it comes to that, but I am agreeing that this airflow situation is a problem, like where we're getting fresh air, but we may not have fresh air outside. So like, how do we fix that? You know, so that's a problem. And then I also agree with the fact that I like energy efficiency. I mean, why do I want to be having a huge carbon footprint? I don't, you know what I mean? I want to be able to have more solar. I want, I love like, I remember when I went to architecture classes and we were taking classes and they were like, oh, the Trumby wall. Remember the whole, like the Trumby (laughs) wall and then passive solar. And I still like, I don't understand why we don't build more passive solar homes. Like, is that like, why is that? It seemed like always a good concept to me and it doesn't seem like we do it. They're actually really hard to control. And uh, maybe if you, uh, maybe you haven't had as much uh, access to some of them because people probably ripped them out, but they, I guess they tried a lot of things that they did with them where they didn't understand all the things that we knew and they usually had moisture or some kind of weird airflow issue where they were just like tinder boxes because they were just circulating all this dry air around the structure and just like <laughs> waiting for it to catch on fire or they had moisture issues where they were circulating a lot of moisture in it so a lot of those like tram walls or the um the greenhouse uh, buildings or whatever that were on the front that were meant to capture all the heat in the greenhouse and then supplement it into the house. Yeah, they were called like, weren't they called, tr- were they Trump? Is that how you said it was Trombi or Trump? Trump walls. Yeah. yeah. So there would be T-R-O-M-B. Or- I always said Trombi. I must have called it the wrong thing. Trump? Is it Trump? It's Trump as far as I know, but I could be yeah. totally No, you're wrong, right. right? Like, you're I- right. <laughs> so they were either you filled the- with water or they were filled mm-hmm. with, uh, they were a solid mass, usually right, concrete. Right, like cement, some concrete. But right, like, correct. They discovered, first of all, that people didn't always love living in these because you either had a greenhouse in the front that absorbed all the heat and then it got absorbed into that like water or concrete wall. But like the best quality light often comes from the south side of your house, which is also where you need to absorb it. So you have like no windows on that side of your house. So because this big wall was in front of the windows to absorb the heat, which was great functional functionally, but like most people don't like living in caves. So when you can't get the natural light into the house, the other thing is generally till they heat up and they're expending that heat into the space, it's already too hot. And then you're opening all the windows and then it's too cold. And then it's this mass. So it was like, so passive solar sucks basically. Well, no, it doesn't, it doesn't suck here. Here's how I like to describe this. If you're going to have a passive house, you need to have an active occupant. But I would say that 95% of the world are not active occupants. We're passive occupants, which means we need active houses to provide the level of comfort that we're willing to live with. So you can do passive solar. I think a lot of passive house is moving towards that. You know, the way that passive houses are built is really great thermal envelopes. They usually have some kind of mass that absorbs the sun and it's low load and there's ways to kind of control that. But you really have to have an active occupant and most people don't want to actively control their house. And I think that was the biggest challenge with passive houses, like the old passive houses, not like passive house, the concept now was that the first owners were really into it and they controlled the house. And then the next owner moved in and had no idea. Like they didn't have a a manual on how to live in this house. And so they would create these greenhouses and these cool things in the, the front sun space. 
Oh, that's bad. I see. Open it to the house. And then it was like super hot in the house. And then they're trying to air condition it and like shade this. And like, it really just ended up being kind of a lot of mismanagement of these structures. And um, so cool ideas that don't work in practice as well as you think they should or could. So they sound good in theory because it always sounded good. Like, I'm like, oh, this is good. Like, why don't we use, you know, face the house in a certain direction, use the heat that's coming in. Like, you know, it sounds good. Yeah. But and so I but I think you're right on the, you know, the whole natural materials and making, you know, it work less and, you know, cutting down on the load and everything else that we're doing in our houses is definitely something that I strive towards. You know, you're doing the healthy home uh, and, and dealing with it and saying, you know, no spray foam, no, no OSB, all that stuff. I like to think about it. If you can't throw it on the ground in your yard and just let it decompose, then you probably shouldn't, shouldn't be doing it. Or if you can't burn it, if you got a problem when you burn it, that's another issue with like PVC and all this stuff. Like, you know, you're releasing all kinds of dioxin into the air. And I mean, these houses, you ever have a house fire and they catch on fire. And, and I think like we're looking in Florida right now and it blows my mind. Like, all this debris and all of this waste and like, look at this destruct, like, what are we going to do with all this stuff? And then I see all these boats like laying there and I'm like, couldn't someone come pick up their boat? Like, I know it sounds so like, it sounds like, so why would you just let it sit there and be destroyed? Like, and I get it. I mean, there was some time, like they knew this was coming. It just seems like such a waste. Like, and I guess that's the environmental person in me. Like, look at all this waste and destruction and all the time and chemicals that went into making these boats and homes. And now they're just, destroyed well and talking about this right because it goes back to the silly book that i'm reading it's not silly it's a book about garbage right and it was written like a decade ago so it would be so interesting to see what this author would say now as our continued use but um he was relating it to hoarders right so if you think about a hoarder they just keep all the stuff in your house and that is your ability to look at the amount of trash that you create right but we have Mm -hmm. trash collection So we just put the trash out and it gets taken away and it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind. It was something like 102 tons worth of trash that people make in their lifetime. Like, and it either gets buried, put in the ocean, or it gets incinerated, right? These are our options for trash. And like people will complain about landfills and all this stuff and then the leachate and the stuff that they didn't know and the bad water quality, which we talked about earlier or whatever. But it's like, they don't want that in their backyard. And it's like, well, but you, we've created this this trash and how like in the ocean, it's like a soup of plastic in the ocean. Oh, it's right? terrible. It's, it's not like this floating mountain of like New York City, uh, like island of trash. It's like soup. It's literally in everything. It's being eaten by the plankton. That's being eaten by the birds. Like, like it's literally in everything. And so you talk about Florida and the trash and the boats and all this stuff. And it's like, just going to go, go to a landfill, right? Because people are all ripping the sheetrock out of their houses, right? Because it's loaded with mold (laughs) now because everything got soaking wet. And like, where is it going to go? Is it going to get recycled? Probably not. No. Like it's going to go to the landfill and it's going to get buried and it's going to live there for however long, right? Because we don't have any responsibility for our trash once it do you feel like am i the only person i think you probably feel like this like every time i put something in the trash not like every time but i'm saying when i see a pack of trash like you know a garbage bag or something of trash 
that I've made, I feel like guilty all the time. Like I look at it and I go, oh God, like, and then I'm thinking, do other people feel like this? Do people, like, I know it's wrong. Like subconsciously, I know to even make this trash, it's wrong. And, and I try, you know what I mean? Like I'm not a person that uses abundance of things and I'm very, you know, I use like what I need and I don't store things. So I'm very conscious of stuff like that, but I feel so guilty. Like when I look at it, cause I know it's just ending up on the planet and all the kids coming beyond us are going to have to deal with my trash and I feel bad, you know? I feel guilty. And at the same time, I totally realize that this is a way bigger issue than you can resolve by just being yes. like, oh, let's be a zero waste society. Like we have to slowly do this because then if you look at, you know, equitable and low income houses, like we don't use a lot of paper towels in our house, right? Because we, and like, maybe my kitchen towels look terrible, right? But I don't care because I can wash it, right? I can wash it. I can make it clean, whatever. But like a kitchen towel is going to cost more than a roll of paper towels. So people sort of just get into these cycles of buying what is cost effective because that is what they can afford at the time, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so we've made it so things that are cheap and generally a bad idea, like I also buy a case of toilet paper, right? So when toilet paper was crazy during the pandemic, it wasn't a thing for me because, <laughs> I, okay. because I was, oh, because the person in me was like, toilet paper comes wrapped in plastic. This is the dumbest thing. How do I get a case of like, you think public buildings, right? And the toilet paper comes wrapped in paper and it doesn't come in plastic. It comes in a case, but I can afford to buy a case of toilet paper. That is not the case for a lot of people, right? They might not be able to put out there and say, I can buy, I don't even know how many rolls come in a case, but like, I can't afford to buy this many rolls of toilet paper at one time, even though it might be cheaper, might be more cost effective, and it doesn't use plastic, right? And so, but one of the the craziest things that um, that I was reading in this book, and that's super interesting to me, and I think a lot of people don't understand, is like, Almost 20% of our garbage waste is food waste. Mm. And if we could just get food waste out of the garbage stream, we would be doing a really good job. So we compost and like lots of people are going to be like, oh my God, that's terrible. I can't compost. I don't want to deal with the thing. It smells terrible, whatever. It's because I have to say, I'm going to vouch. I decided I was going to compost my garden. It was really smelly. Yeah. <laughs> gonna... So so here's what I want to encourage a lot of other people to do too, because my husband would never have been on board with composting at home. He's just like, this is terrible. We have a company here that delivers a five gallon bucket and you can just do it at the dump too. So if you can't afford to have them come and pick it up and deliver it, you can pick up this five gallon bucket. You put your food scraps in the five gallon bucket. They bring you back compost. They compost it. They've made a business out That's of it. They work good. with a local farmer. You don't have to worry about, okay, when it's August and it's been like a month since they picked it up, it could get a little smelly if it's super hot. Just take your bucket and replace it. Super no, great. not a little smelly, people. I did this compost. It ended up smelling like diarrhea. I had it in the <laughs> garden. I'm being honest. Like this is a full on podcast. We can be honest. Like my bucket smelled like diarrhea. For, I, I mean, I had, it was disgusting. Like let it the is company. disgusting. If you're going to do it at home, you need to really learn how to do it so that it's not so disgusting because it that is was. super gross. Foul. <laughs> But they have clearly figured out how to make this work as a system, right? So up in our area, I got a five-gallon bucket. Somebody else picks it up. Somebody else composts That's it. Great. And they bring back the compost. And say you live in a small, smaller house, apartment, don't have a big yard, whatever. If you don't need your compost, they donate it to the schools. 
So they will send out the compost to the schools and the other local facilities. It is a super cool program. I absolutely love it. They'll set up at local festivals and stuff too. So they'll have like a food scrap section there. They'll compost the food waste from the festivals. Like it's just so super cool. And like they partnered with a farmer, right? So they've got somebody who's got big equipment that can turn over this pile that can do it on a larger scale that created a business out of it. And like, yeah, this is super cool. This is what you should do. And like, you could replace your bucket every week if you needed to. Like if you had a party and, you know, you had family over and you had a bunch of extra food scraps and you wanted to trade it in, or it got really smelly because it was August. You just get rid of your bucket and you get a clean bucket and like, boom, you're done. So you reminded me of something. I went to, um, it was called the See Here Now Festival. It's like a beach festival and they have, it's like two days of festivals. And so I was looking for parking and this guy's like, Hey, you could park here. And it was like right by the entrance in. I'm like, Oh my God, this is awesome. So I pull in I pull the car in and I look up, I get out of the car and, um, my partner's next to me. He says, cause it kind of smells over here. And I'm like, what do you smell? I look up Emily and like, I am parked in front of the biggest dumpster you could ever imagine. And it is filled with all of what you're talking about from this one festival and people, if you saw So I I don't know, maybe there were 40,000 people there saw the garbage from one two day festival. And this was day one. So it wasn't even like the second day hadn't occurred. How much garbage we had made in this dumpster. It made you, I looked up and I'm like, oh my God. And that's just one thing. And that's got to go somewhere and they're going to bury it. And it's got to be like you said, like that's probably maybe 50% food and, and just right, leftover food, you know? which toxic turns into like some kind of weird toxic sludge, right? Cause it's breaking down around the plastic stuff that is not breaking down. And so like, if you could just take this piece out and what's super frustrating is, um, so back in the middle ages, they used to throw everything in the street, right? They threw their food scraps and they threw their, their waste and everything like in the streets. And then people were starting to get, I mean, this led to like the black plague was right. Uh, cholera, spread. like all, like when we were mixing our, our wastewater with our drinking water and then we all got cholera. <laughs> exactly. So I think it was either in the early, in the early uh, 19, late 1900s or something. Yeah. They started mm-hmm. cleaning up New York City. Yeah. And they had this guy who created this plan for New York City to clean up the streets, right? And one, he really underestimated people's actual ability to commit to recycling, which is pretty terrible. <laughs> like, all you had to do was separate three things. Food scraps, uh, ash waste, because back in the time, everybody burned everything, right? So they had ash waste from their fireplaces or whatever. And um, then it was like everything else, glass, metal, all all kinds of stuff. And like, they were better at recycling more than a hundred years ago than we are now. Like, this is super depressing. (laughs) Super depressing. But then of course the administration changed. And when the administration changed, that all went, went away. And it's like, no, no, no. I mean, also though, I think we're like overwhelmed too, because I think they had more basic, like we're going back to this whole basic idea of basic building and basic necessities. And like, now we've got all these styrofoam, then you've got like this recycled plastic and then this carton, and then people get like overwhelmed. (laughs) They're like, what do I do? And then you can't clean the stuff out. Have you ever tried to like recycle something and you just can't get all like the makeup or the stuff out of it? And then you're like, well, should I put this in there? It's not really clean. It's got like sticky, maybe it's got jam on it or peanut butter. I mean, the whole system's just you know, it's awry. Something's gone awry. Something has totally gone awry in the whole system. I know it's crazy. It's crazy. So, oh my God. But yeah, 
so many cool ideas, so many things that we could talk about for hours and hours. <laughs> we should just start our own podcast together and just get together, just like talk about things because oh my God, it's been great. So oh my much God, fun. it's so fun. It really, I, I mean, I don't, I'm sorry people who are listening, but I'm like totally just feel like I'm having a conversation with Emily without you. But that, that's how my podcast goes. It's, like, it's just a conversation. Like, let's talk about what's out there. Let's talk about these things. Like prove me wrong if I'm wrong. I love that. I love learning new things from other people. Like this is just, um, this is what I call fun. This is definitely the the highlight of my day, what I've been looking forward to all day. So I appreciate <laughs> you coming on and talking with me. Like this has been so much fun. <laughs> It's a good time for sure. It is. It is. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you really enjoyed this podcast with Caroline. I know I enjoyed it. I love hearing how our indoor environments really affect us and people who've been in 30,000 homes just have a vast knowledge and experience that they can share. So I hope you enjoyed listening to Caroline. If you have anyone you want to hear on the podcast, definitely send me their contact information, emily at matramarch.com. I will see you guys next time. Until then, stay nerdy.